Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We're starting something new tonight. If you have your Bible open to John chapter 1, um, you guys know that I am a, a systematic person. I think systematically. I like systematic. Um, but I also am a detail person. I like details. Uh, and sometimes when we're systematically going through books of the Bible, which I, I believe is invaluable uh, for maturity in the faith and to be complete as Christians, um, there are times that you come across certain elements or certain passages, certain things that you wish you could go deeper into or that you wish you could pick apart. And it's harder to do that when you're moving line by line, chapter by chapter. And so what we're going to do for the next several weeks um, is we're going to have a series of studies called Interactive. And, uh, and basically, what we're going to look at are interactions that Jesus had uh, with individuals or, or small groups of individuals that are purposefully placed in the Scripture for our benefit in order for us to understand something. If you were to um, take the Bible... That God, sometimes. <laughs> if you, I, I've completed phase one of the study. It is done. You know, <laughs> uh, if you were to take the Bible and compare it to a, to a human body, uh, the heart would really be the Gospels. Um, the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament was setting up for and, and preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus, which is presented in the Gospels. And then everything after the Gospels in the New Testament is really a reflection or a commentary or an expansion upon what uh, Jesus came to do. But he even testified that the whole of the scripture exists to testify of him. So the Gospels really are the heart of it. Now, if you were to zero in a little bit closer on the Gospels and, and kind of pick them apart, you would see that there's really four elements that are there. Uh, first of all, there is the history. It's just this is the framework within which all of these events happened. You know, so they went here, they did that. This was in Jerusalem or it was at the time of this feast. And all of that is just kind of the historical value that gives us uh, context. It gives us vision. It helps us understand what's going on. Um, the other, another element is the miracles. We see the signs that Jesus performed. And all of those things are intentionally placed there as signs to reveal something to us about God. They weren't just random things that were there to show that he was God, but they had a secondary purpose to reveal something about God. And so a very important element of the Gospels is the miracles. Another uh, element is the teachings, or the teachings that Jesus gave. Those give to us instruction for our life. They help us to understand the culture of his kingdom. They help us to understand his ways. And so the teachings of Jesus are paramount because they're priceless in instructing us. But then the fourth element uh, that we have in the Gospels is really the relational aspect. And that is the part where Jesus interacted with people. He had conversations, uh, sometimes conflicts, sometimes questions, but he had interactions with people, and really what it is, it's a picture of God relating with man. And those things are intentionally set forward for us and recorded, not just as trophies, but really so that we could see what God wants to do in our lives. 
the, the relational aspect of what Jesus did with people while he was on earth is a foreshadowing of what God wants relationally with us. He didn't call us into a religion. He didn't call us to be church people and to have kind of a creed to just say what we believe. He wants us to know him. And so the relational element is of utmost importance, and that's what we're going to be looking at really in these uh, series of studies of these interactions. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, that the things that are recorded are written for our examples, and they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And so these things aren't just written you know, basically to be monuments or memoirs of what happened, but rather they're a menu of what's available to you and I, what God really wants in our lives. And so the relational component exists to reveal what God wants to do in our lives. Segment two of the study is now complete. I have to move on. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) Anyways, tonight we have the very first uh, critically important um, relationship that Jesus had or interaction that Jesus had is with a man whose name was Nathaniel. And I start with this intentionally because I believe that if we can grasp what God did in his life and apply it to our own, then it sets a good foundation for us having a fruitful and effective relationship with the Lord. If we don't get this part of it, then we can miss out, even if we walk with God for many years, we can be missing out on something that we could have uh, with him. Now, this is kind of an obscure uh, interaction. It's with a man whose name is Nathaniel. His name only appears twice in the New Testament, once in John chapter 1, the other in John chapter 21. And yet it seems that he was one of the 12 apostles. Yet you're, you're saying, I, I don't really recognize the name Nathaniel ever being listed amongst the 12. And, and it's not. Uh, most scholars, Bible commentators, historians believe that when we read of Bartholomew, that that was kind of a nickname for Nathaniel. We don't know. There's no way that we could absolutely know that for sure. But it does seem that he was one of the 12. But this interaction is somewhat obscure but it's one of my favorites and the reason why it's one of my favorites is 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 first of all because of how it went down when you look at what happened in the exchange between jesus and nathaniel it's if you just read over it you miss it but if you really look at what happens there it's quite puzzling uh how it goes in the back and forth and then the other reason it's one of my favorite is because of what it reveals and so just to give you a little bit of uh history and background as to what was going on at this point, you've got to understand kind of the layout of the land of Israel in Jesus' day. And, and I do this uh, for this study, but also as we go through future studies, if you see it and get a, a picture of it and understand what the land looked like, and it, when you see that it says that Jesus went here or he went there, it, it, you kind of understand it. And so the land in Jesus' day really was kind of divided into two sections, well, three sections. There was the northern section, if you look way up at the top of the image, you'll see that little body of water uh, inland from the Mediterranean Sea. That's the Sea of Galilee. And that's where the majority of Jesus' ministry took place, in that region up in the north part. uh, When you read about the little villages of Cana and Bethesda and even Nazareth, all of those villages and towns were up in that Galilee region. But then way down in the south, If you see where it says uh, Judea, right above it, there's a little star, and it says Jerusalem. 
That was the southern portion of the land. And every time that you read about Jesus in the temple or you read about Jesus in Jerusalem or at one of the feasts, he would be down in the southern portion of the land in Jerusalem, which was a requirement for Jews a few times a year for specific spiritual reasons they would have to go. And so when you follow the ministry of Jesus, sometimes he's in Galilee and sometimes he's in Jerusalem. Now, in between Galilee and Jerusalem, that middle area, you'll see it says Samaria. And Samaria was kind of like a no-man's land for the Jews. The Samaritans were kind of a mixed breed. They were half Jewish, half other. And so the Jews kind of rejected the Samaritans, and the Samaritans rejected the Jews. And so anytime people would travel from Galilee down to Jerusalem, they wouldn't usually go through Samaria. They would go over to the Jordan River, which if you draw a line from Galilee to that other body of water, which is the Dead Sea, that's where the Jordan River runs. They would travel along the Jordan River. Well, the setting for the interaction that we have before us between Jesus and Nathaniel, it happens on the Jordan River just to what, as you would see it, it would be the left of Jerusalem where the area was where John the Baptist was baptizing some of his disciples. That's the area where it was, and that's um, where we come to in this thing. Now, understand this also, that the timing of this conversation, this interaction between Jesus and Nathaniel, it takes place on the second day of Jesus' public ministry. So the only thing that has happened with Jesus being officially in ministry is that moment that he was baptized by John the Baptist and he came up out of the water and the spirit came upon him in the form of a dove and God spoke from heaven. That event marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And it's on the second day, the day after his baptism, that this interaction happens. And consequently, fire has come upon the Son of God, and fire is flowing through the Son of God, and followers are coming to him uh, at a rapid rate, even for the second day. Just in this chapter alone, two are going to become four, are going to become five, and there's very little effort being expended on the part of Jesus in order to make that happen. His influence is beginning to immediately spread, not because of anything that he is doing, but because of who he is and the spirit that is upon him. And I want to point that out right here at the onset because we live in kind of a day and age where there's this pressure upon people to be influencers. Who are you influencing? How are you influencing? And what we see of Jesus is that he made the greatest influence with the least amount of effort, not because of what he did, but because of who he was filled with. And the way that you and I are going to be influencers in our life is not by the things that we put out there for people to see that may or not be real reflections of who we are, but when we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, then we become influencers for God, and it's real because what's going on in our life is not something that we're putting out to paint a picture, but it's something that's real that God is working inside of us, and He is causing our lives to be an influence for His kingdom and for good. And that's what's happening on this second day of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so Andrew 
and Peter are already following Jesus. And it's with them following that we read and pick up in verse 43 of John's gospel, the first chapter. And in our text, it says that the day following... So this is now the third day after uh, the second day after the baptism. It says that Jesus would go forth now into Galilee. So he's going to leave that southern region and begin traveling northward. And it says that he findeth Philip and he said unto him, follow me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And so all of the players in this chapter reside in the Galilee region and they are down in this area where John is baptizing because these people have a heart for God and they know that John is a prophet and they're interested in what John has to say and so these people are in that region for a reason they want to know who this God is that John the Baptist is talking about and now they're getting to know who he is and so Jesus calls Philip and Philip He says to him, come and follow me. And it says in verse 45 that Philip then findeth Nathanael and said unto him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now that fascinates me right there. That here Jesus just goes and he sees this man, Philip, and he says, Philip, come and follow me. And the same day that Philip comes into this kind of closer walk with Jesus, he goes from just being someone who might be special or someone who might just be a rabbi or a prophet to being fully persuaded on the same day that this is the promised Messiah that we've been waiting for since the very beginning. And so he goes to Nathaniel and he gives to Nathaniel now this report. And so... Nathaniel hears the words of Philip, and his reply is in verse 46. And it says that Nathaniel said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said unto him, Come and see. Now, I love this because Nathaniel's reply to Philip's invitation is one that is filled with skepticism. He hears the word that Philip says, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He's from Nazareth. He's Joseph's son. And immediately the shield of skepticism goes up in Nathaniel's front or in his mind. And his reply is, can anything good come from Nazareth? Is it even possible that this could be? Interesting. It would be like for you and I to say, can any good thing come out of Newburgh? You know, if somebody said that there's a a Messiah and he's from Newburgh, he's the son of a carpenter, you would be like, Newburgh, are you kidding me? Like, couldn't he be from Beacon or something? I mean, Newburgh, nothing good can come from Newburgh. (laughs) As many of you as I know are here tonight from Newburgh, I asked you if it was okay, if you'd be offended if I said that. And everybody said, no, 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 we'll help you, (laughs) you know. (laughs) It's funny how God has a way of raising up people to speak to us that come from a place that we think God could never use that person or where they're from to speak to us because we've already got that all figured out. Sometimes it could be like God wants to reach you and use you through your spouse. 
But your history with your spouse or what you know about your spouse, you would say, well, God, that message could never be coming to me through them. (laughs) Because can any good thing come from them? God might use someone in your life that you would think that God could never raise up in your life. God might want to speak to you through a boss or a supervisor or someone that just grinds you the wrong way, a type A person, and you're just so uh, counter whatever, fitting with them, you know, and God might want to use you to speak into their life. And and it's kind of thing where Nathaniel already has a prejudice against any possibility of Jesus being of any saving value to him simply on the basis of that. I already kind of know where he's coming from. He's from Nazareth. It's an interesting thing how that happens. He's doubtful. He's critical. He's skeptical. This is his attitude. And I love Philip's response. He just says, come and see and that gives me great comfort because i'm certain that philip on the first day that he met jesus didn't have a lot of answers to the questions that a skeptic would bring to him but he didn't have to have answers to the questions because it isn't our job as the people of god to defend god to people it's our job to invite people to come and see for themselves and that's all we'll ever be able to do That's what Philip did. He responded to a call, and in coming into contact with Jesus himself, he went from Jesus just being a rabbi to Jesus being the Messiah. And Philip knows that that's the same thing that will happen to Nathaniel if he gets him in the presence of Jesus. And so for you and I, sometimes the answer isn't being able to answer every skeptic or every question that they have. Sometimes it's just the simple thing of just saying, you come and see for yourself. Come and see the people of God. Come and be in a place where you hear the word of God, in a place where the spirit of God is moving, and see how God might reveal himself to you. Come and see. And that's exactly what Nazareth now does. He comes with Philip, and though Philip didn't have the answers, Nazareth comes to see. Now, here's the interaction. It says in verse 47. It says that Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said of him, So as Nathanael is coming, before there's even an official introduction, Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. So he sees Nathanael, and he observes him, and then he makes a declaration about something in his character that there is no way that he could know having not been introduced to him previously, and yet he does know because of who he is. And he declares it in the audience of Nathaniel who hears it and will reply to it. But isn't it interesting? Jesus said, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. The word guile means angles, motives, agenda, darkness, psyops basically what he's saying is that there's an israelite here who is a straight shooter now kind of parenthetically but i think importantly isn't it amazing the difference between nathaniel's presupposition of jesus and jesus first words to nathaniel see the first thing nathaniel wanted to do was say what denomination is he from he's a nazarene we don't, we don't associate with Nazarenes. They died a long time ago. That denomination's dead. Can anything good come out of them? But Jesus looks at the bigger picture. He looks at a man, and not even as he is, but as he will be. And he calls him not by what he is in the micro, but why he is in the big picture. And he says, an Israelite indeed. And at that, one 
in whom is no guile. He's a straight shooter. He is the kind of man that he is. He says something about his character. And here's the amazing thing about Jesus, being that he's Jesus. He says something that goes right to the core of who Nathaniel is, or at very least who Nathaniel wants to be. And Jesus speaks it in a way that Nathaniel can hear it. And it shakes him. That one sentence from Jesus shakes him. It kind of takes his legs out from under him, so to speak. I was uh, exposing Rocky to um, Mike Tyson. I don't know how we got on boxing, but I said, let me show you boxing. And I showed him a couple of Mike Tyson's, you know, um, highlights. And, and we were just watching how he would just, you know, you know, throw a punch that didn't even seem like it was a real hard punch. And you would just watch the, the opponent's legs just buckle. They, they, he just took all the strength out of their legs with just that punch. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He gives them the left hook or the uppercut. He just speaks a word and, and Nathaniel is shaken right to the core. And look at his reply. He says in verse 48, Nathaniel said unto him, from whence knowest thou me? How do you know me? And then Jesus gives his answer. He says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel looks at Jesus, and essentially, after one word, he looks at him and he says, You know me? You know me? That's the title of the message tonight. You, you know me? How do, how do you know me? And what Jesus does here and what Nathaniel realizes is that Jesus hits upon one of the greatest inherent longings that every human being has, though maybe we can't verbalize it. And that is that every single one of us that has a heartbeat, a pulse, and a fingerprint has a desire to be known. That's something that's been placed in us by God because it says that we're made in His image And it's the desire of God to be known. That's why he made the earth and he put us in it, because he wants to be known. And it's something that he put inside of every one of us, a desire to be known. And that's what drives a lot of the things that we do, is that we have this drive that we want to be known. We want to express ourselves and we want it to be recognized. There's a higher inherent drive that every one of us also has beyond just being known. And that is that every single one of us also want to be loved. There's something inside of us that we want to be loved, that that there's a thing, and that comes from God. That's inside of us. And so what you have is you have these two things. We have a desire to be known, and we have a desire to be loved. And when you put those two things together, you add the desire to be known and the desire to be loved, what can result from that oftentimes is one of the greatest fears that almost every human being also has. And that is the fear of rejection. If I have a desire to be known and an even greater desire to be loved, then what happens if when I am known, I am then rejected or unloved? I don't know if I can bear the pain of it. And we all feel the pain of that to some degree early on in our life and in our existence. And so the fear of rejection that all of us have is born out of this inherent desire to be both known and loved. And because this fear is so great in most of humanity, most of the 8 billion people in the planet, 
What we do in our very nature and from a very young age is that we, listen, we search out and we create a persona that we feel will be the most received. We're not certain that it's safe to be who we really are. From a young age, we watch our parents and they're the first ones that we look to for acceptance and to be known by and to be loved by. And when they approve of certain behaviors and disapprove of others, which, by the way, should happen, that's a good thing to some degree, we learn this is acceptable and this isn't. And we begin to conform an identity based upon what is approved or what will be known and loved. And then at an early age, we're exposed to culture and society that begins to drive into us the message that unless you're smart enough, unless you're athletic enough, unless you're talented enough, unless you're good looking enough, then you're not going to be received. And so we begin to look at attributes of personalities as though we're looking at a menu and we choose what's best fitting with what we can produce and we begin to build an identity for ourselves based upon what we think will be acceptable, rather than discovering what it is that God made us in his image, fearfully and wonderfully, and by his hand. And then we go through life with this identity that we put on, this mask, this facade. We put on these clothes in these costumes, and sometimes we can even become confused. Sometimes we can find that we come into our adult years, and we don't even really know who we are. And certainly no one else really knows who we are. And somehow we get into this thing where we don't really know. And then into that now for Nathaniel, we don't know where he is in all of this. He steps in and Jesus says something to him that gets him at a point where he realizes that this man is not talking to the me that I'm putting out in front of everyone else. And he's not talking to the me that I'm trying to figure out and that I'm confused about. This guy knows something about me that even I don't know about me. He knows me on a deeper level than anyone has ever known me. And it shakes him. And he realizes this is going on. And he says, how do you know me? In the reply of Jesus, he says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, he says, I saw you. Now, that sounds very passive. It's just like, oh, I saw you while you were under the fig tree. But that is not a passive statement, neither is it a small event. And here's why. Because I want you to notice the flip that takes place in Nathaniel over this word. Notice what Nathaniel says in verse 49. It says that Nathaniel answered and said unto him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. How do you go in a matter of 60 seconds from, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? (laughs) Yeah, sure, sure, he's the Messiah. I'm sure you found him. You know, you see him on YouTube? Probably, right? Yeah. How do you go from that to not only rabbi, but you're the son of God? He ascribes to him the highest of his titles and then the king of Israel, the Christ, the Messiah. I saw you under the fig tree. And it begs the question, what in the world was going on under the fig tree? I wonder myself if that was a place where maybe Nathaniel would not just be one time, but if it's some place that he would resort to frequently. I wonder if that's the place where he would go when things would get a little bit heavy and hectic in his life and he would need to escape and maybe 
think for himself like, hey, what in the world am I in right now? Or maybe it was the place where Nathaniel would go wrestling with his own demons. Maybe he was a man. We know he's an Israelite, which means that he wanted to follow God. Jesus addresses that. So he had a heart after God. And maybe it was under the fig tree where Nathaniel would go and he would say, God, I hate these parts of me. God, I hate the fact that I have to put up this front. I hate the fact that I am this sarcastic person. I hate the fact that I am so skeptical of everything and that I have such a hard time trusting everyone. And I long for the day when I'm not that way, when I'm free to be just who I am. And it could be that was the prayer that Nathaniel would pray under that tree. And what Jesus is letting Nathaniel in on here is that long before any human ever told you who I was, long before you were invited to a service or to see who I was personally, long before you even knew I existed, I was watching your life. I was working on you and I was working in you and I was seeing the real you and I was preparing you for this moment when you would encounter me, not the fake you, but the real you would come in contact with the real me and something could begin and start between us. And when Nathaniel hears that and realizes it, he looks at him and he says, not only are you rabbi, but you're the son of almighty God. You're the king of Israel, soon to be the king of my life. This isn't the first time in the passage that this happened. The same thing happened to Peter. What I want you to hear tonight is that the reason why this is here in the text this way this interaction, as almost unbelievable as it is, is because what God wants you to know is that this is the same exact thing that he wants to do in your life. And he wants you to know that he knows who you are. He knows who you are. Not your name. I'm not talking about your background, where you're from. And I'm not talking about the costumes and the masks and the persona that you put forward or the person that you wish you were behind the person that you hate that's inside that you really are i'm talking about you the real you underneath all the layers the you that god wants to deal with that's you i want to tell you just as we finish off our study tonight i want to tell you four facts about you and i'm actually going to spell a word for you i'm going to spell the word fact i'm going to tell you four things about you the you that God sees and the thing that God knows, and it's universally applicable. The first one is that you, in the eyes of God, are fully known. Just as Nathaniel was taken back by the fact that he was known by Jesus, you know me, understand that you are fully known, not partially, not almost, not he's working out the deeper things and trying to figure you out like everyone else is. You are already fully known by God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that all things are naked and opened before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That means that he sees to the very core of you, not just the physical, but he sees inside of you. He sees the mental, the physical, the depths of your soul, the way you're wired and the way you think. That's what he sees. He sees what drives you at the, at the atomic level, at the deepest level of the soul. You're naked and open. Now, that used to bother me because a lot of times I would pray for something, and when my prayer wouldn't be answered, I would have this innate sense inside that the reason why he's not answering my prayers is because he's seeing something right now about me that I can't see. 
and, and it kind of would bother me that I wasn't able to work the angles with God, you know. But we can't hide from it. I'm reading a book right now by this guy named uh, Ian Cron, and he tells a story in the book about when he was a teenager growing up in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, him and his friends decided on a Friday night for fun, they would put on ski masks and then streak through a high-end country club in, in Greenwich. And so they did that. They wore ski masks, and then they streaked through this thing. And then he said the next morning he uh, woke up, he went downstairs, and, and his mom was kind of, you know, a little bit off, you know, whatever. And, and, he, and she said, what did you do last night? And he said, oh, I just hung out with the guys, whatever. And she goes, really? And then she goes, a ski mask? A ski mask? And he immediately realized. She goes, I would know that scrawny backside anywhere. <laughs> see the things some people can see about us that we can't see about ourselves but god sees all things right down to the very core see it used to bother me but i understand why it's necessary that god knows me and that he knows you on that level and here's here's why because if god didn't know you fully then it would be impossible for him to save you you could not be saved if God only knew you partially because for him to save you, he actually signed a contract in his blood where he itemized every wrong thing you ever did in your life and agreed to take it upon himself. And unless he could see what every one of those things was and the person that was driven to do or think or be those things, it would be impossible for him to make that agreement. So without full knowledge, full disclosure, full nakedness, it would be impossible for him to save me. But second to that, it would also be impossible for him to love me. Because if he couldn't see who I really am, and if it was possible for me to hide parts of who I am from who he is, then in my mind there would always be the question mark, does he love me or does he love the me I let him see? And I would always wonder, if he saw what I really am all the way through and through, would he still love me? And I'm not sure, because I have a hard time accepting things about myself. But the Bible says that all things are naked and open before him. We are fully known, and yet we're saved by his grace, and we're loved by him fully. Because we are fully known, it also means, and here's the second letter for you, is that we are accepted that we are accepted by God. Now, this is hard for me. And the reason it's hard for me is because a lot of times it's hard for me to accept myself. I have trouble accepting myself. See, I can tolerate myself because I have to. And if you told me that God tolerated me and acceptance was pending, I would, that would be easy. I could accept that. But the Bible says that I'm accepted by God, which means literally that I am in my present state pleasing to him and accepted same way that god said of jesus when jesus was baptized and he said that this is my son in whom i am well pleased that's accepted and because i'm loved by god i'm accepted by god and he accepts all of who i am that means he accepts the part of me that always feels inadequate because i'm not living up to the expectations that others have of me that god accepts the parts of me that don't have the personality that I think I need to be who I'm supposed to be in a given situation, to command a room or to do things that I need to do. It means that he accepts me in spite of the fact that I don't maybe have the gifts or the skills or the strength to, to become what I think I should be or need to be. 
that I'm accepted in spite of the fact that maybe I'm afraid to get close to someone because if they see what I really am, they might push me away, but he accepts me in spite of that. It means that I'm accepted even though I might feel like I'm missing something that someone else has or that everyone else has. You know, people have this ability to understand social situations, and I'm an idiot when I get around people. I don't understand what to do. I clam up and just want to get away. And I hate that about myself because I don't have something that it seems like everyone else has, and, and I'm not accepted in that group. Why would it be accepted by God? But God says you're accepted just like that. It means that he accepts me even when I can't seem to get out of my own way because I keep making a mess of everything in my life. I'm accepted by him. Well, it begs the question, and I ask the question, well, how can I be accepted by a perfect God when I'm imperfect? And here's the reason. It's the third letter. It's the third fact about you that you need to know. It's because you are cleansed. It's because you are cleansed. You know, in the book of Acts, chapter 10, when Peter was being told by God to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time, Peter had this kind of youthful conviction that Gentiles couldn't be saved. That was something that was put in them in their Judaism. Gentiles were not worthy. They were not uh, uh, able to be saved by God. And yet God wanted Peter to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so the way that God did it is that he gave Peter a, a vision. And in the vision, there was this big sheet that was let down from heaven and on it were all these unclean animals that Jews weren't allowed to eat. Lobsters, cockroaches, uh, ravens, owls, bats. You know, all the things that you and I crave. And all, you know, no, but, but that's what was on this sheet. And, and so Peter sees this thing, and, and then he hears God speak to him. And God says to Peter, he says, rise up and eat. And Peter looks at it and he says, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And then Jesus quickly doesn't miss a beat, and he looks at Peter, and he says, Peter, what I have cleansed, do not call unclean. What I have cleansed, do not call unclean. Now, I have a question for you. Did anything change in the cockroach, pre-cross, post-cross? Did anything change in the genetic makeup or the substance of the meat inside a bat wing? No, nothing changed. What changed was the position of its cleanliness based upon what Jesus did for it. And what I'm amazed by is when you read it in the language, it almost sounds as though Jesus is offended by the fact that Peter would call something unclean that Jesus calls clean. And what Jesus provided for you and I when he shed his blood upon the cross is he provided cleansing for our sin. And on the other side of the cross, we were exactly the same as we were in a literal sense before it, but we were declared righteous not because of anything that's in us, but because of what's been done in him. And that's how a perfect God can love an imperfect person and accept them where they are because we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. And because of that, the fourth fact about you is that we're treasured. Colossians chapter 2, verse 10 says that you are complete in Christ. That he is glorified and magnified through who you are right now. And I want to make this clear. Please, if you've tuned me out, come back. 
is that Jesus did not die for you in order to make you into something you're not, but to cleanse and complete who you are. That's why Jesus died. He did not die so that you could become smarter or more outgoing or more poised or more organized or maybe extroverted or stronger or anything else. Jesus didn't die saying, well, I'm going to make you into something that you're not. He says, I made you the way I made you. I'm going to cleanse, complete and beautify you. And you filled with my spirit is going to be more beautiful expression of anything this world has ever seen than anything you could ever make yourself by effort or dress or facade. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. It isn't what we make ourselves or think we should be. It's what He is in us. And the Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And He treasures us as we are. These are the facts about you. Now here's the issue as we draw closer to a close is that we miss out oftentimes on experiencing him in his fullness. And here's why. Because we are shielding ourselves from him with our costumes. We're not allowing God to fill us with himself and with his love. And the barrier that's keeping us back is the thing that we think we're supposed to be. The things that we put on become the very barrier. There's an interesting thing that kind of happens earlier in the passage, in, up in verse 38. You know, the first two followers that uh, follow Jesus, one of them is Andrew, and we don't know the name of the other one, but they just start following Jesus. He's walking, and they start following, and Jesus kind of turns around, and he just looks at him, and he goes, what do you guys want? That's kind of cool, right? I mean, you're trying to build a following, and, and yet you have, like, that confidence, you know, and, and yet with love to be able to look around and be like, hey, what do you want? Why are you following me? Like, are you strange? And they didn't know what to say, so they look around and they, and they look at Jesus and they say, where, where do you live? <laughs> like, is that really what you want? Like, you just want to know what, like, is it a big house? Like, what kind of, what kind of house does a rabbi have? Like, is that really what you, what you want? And, and Jesus gives the answer to them. He just says, come and see. He kind of just invites them to follow along. He confirms the invitation and the desire of them to follow. But in my, in my Bible, I actually wrote the words, nowhere. Because the Bible says that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Like, that's what Jesus said later on. Like, he didn't have a house. He didn't have a place. And so the actual answer to that question, where do you live, the answer is nowhere. Now, that's kind of true, and it's kind of not. Because although he doesn't have a, a residing place, a temple, a church, a house, somewhere where he physically resides, he absolutely does live somewhere. But where he lives is in the lives of his people. And so, so I know this is so stupid, but this is just the way my mind sees things. It's that I have like 25% artist in me. That's been done by DNA test or something somewhere, you know. But, but, but like if you take that W in nowhere, you know, he, where does he live? He lives nowhere. You take the W and you remove it. Now, now it says no here. No here. Where does Jesus live? Where do you live? Where do you live? No. Here. This is where I live, right here. Well, how do we get there? Here's how you get there. Listen, this is the message tonight that you need to hear. You remove the double U. You remove the W. You remove 
the you that you think you need to be in order for God to accept who you are. And you present to God the you that you are, the real you, the only you, and nothing but you, and you say, God, here am I. And he says, that's the you that I made. That's the you that I died for and paid for in my blood. That's the you that I want to fill with my Holy Spirit. That's the you that I want to influence. That's the you that I want to change from the inside out, not because I want you to be different, but because you can't stay the same when you receive the level of love that I have for you. You remove the W. You say, well, what about my sin? What about the issue of my iniquity, the thing that I hate about myself? I want you to understand something. When I met my wife, Georgia, we were in high school, and, 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 and that it was even a possibility for me to be able to attain to that level of a human being being interested in me. And then she was. And if I told you how I did it, you would say, that's impossible. It's impossible. But when we began to date, and, and then you know, neither of us were saved, and so then she became my girlfriend, there was this immediate and instinctual change that happened in my life. I'm not talking about the way I dressed or I started to, like, clean myself differently. Like, I kind of already figured out that, you know, I'm in high school. I have to do those things. But I'm talking about a deeper change. All of a sudden, the presence of this love, it stripped away my insecurities. It stripped away the, 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 the fear I had of people. There was just this child, childishness that fell away. A sense of inadequacy that I had just fell away. There was this confidence that came into my life and became a part of who I was because of this relationship that I was now in. And there was this amazing transformation of how I just came to life. And it was nothing other than human love that did that. Now multiply that by 10,000 and now you have the love of God. And it's impossible for you to come into a relationship with the living God and for you to experience the level of love that he has for you. Not just said, oh, I did it on the cross, receive it and see you in heaven. But what his spirit wants to shed abroad in your life right now. And what that does in us to strip away the things about ourselves that we hate. You know, what, you know what's amazing? What did, what did Jesus say to Nathaniel? He said, an Israelite in whom is no guile. What did... What did Nathaniel say when Philip invited him? He goes, <laughs> a Nazarite? That's guile. The very thing that came out of his mouth was guile. And then Jesus looked at him and said, no guile. The thing that maybe Nathaniel hated about himself and couldn't get victory over, in one word, Jesus with him, he knew something inside me just changed. The thing that I've been wrestling with the most and for the longest, just something just changed. Who are you? You, you? Overwhelmed. And to know this level of love that he has. I invite you to stand with me as we close. Maybe you're here tonight and you sense in your heart that maybe there's some layers of costume or clothing that you need to shed. Maybe there's some barriers that you've placed between you and God that you think that until certain things are set right or addressed a certain way, I can't approach to him or expect that I'll receive anything from him. Listen, here's what you need to know tonight. Is that the one who God wants to deal with and the one who God wants to fill is you. 
Not the you you think you want to become, but you. And tonight, maybe the response to this message is just a faith response to just let Jesus in and to shed those layers, to maybe, to maybe repent of the resistance that you might be carrying to just accept what he made you to be. No, I don't want to be who he made me to be. I want to be someone else or I want to be something. Maybe the faith response is to say, no, Lord, you, you said I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And you want to love what you made me to be. And you accepted it. And you cleansed it. And so here it is. If you're willing, fill it. Maybe at night you want to be filled and you just want to lift your hand and I'll pray for you. Father, I just pray tonight as hands are raised to heaven, as our hearts recognize and realize that, that it's you, Lord, that knows us like no one else can know us. And it's only you that can love us in the way that we really need to be loved. And I pray tonight, Lord, that here as a congregation of simple, flawed, and broken people that are needy, Oh, Lord, that you would come tonight and that you'd help us. Lord, that where we feel maybe that we haven't received a fullness of you, Lord, I pray that tonight we would. That you would meet us here as we declare our faith in you. That you would fill us with your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you love us so perfectly. We thank you that you know us so fully. And we thank you that you were willing to demonstrate it by shedding your blood to prove it to seal us, to save us. So have your way in our lives. We invite you in afresh tonight that you would be our Lord. You would be our lover, our King, and our friend. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.